Well, good evening to you all. You're very welcome. My name is Shane Hall, and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and Why You Need It. And the subtitle is Surely We Are Perfectly Happy As We Are. So if you are, you can leave. <laughs> now, the fundamental question in philosophy is who am I or what am I? However, we spend our lives trying to understand everything else, other people and things, without ever discovering who am I in truth. If we were to reflect on how yesterday was spent, what was the mind given to, how much of the day was dedicated to discovering the truth about myself. Well, without this knowledge, without knowing who am I, we have nothing. In the Gospel of St. Thomas, Jesus said, The man who knows the all, but fails to know himself, lacks everything. Now, not something, but everything. So, if that one piece of knowledge is missing, according to Jesus, you lack everything. Or we lack everything. Now, if you are to consider somebody who knows a lot, or who has a very fine mind. So, if you take somebody like a Leonardo da Vinci, and you consider all that he produced... But, if he did not know who he was, to the wise man he lacked everything. And interestingly enough, when Leonardo da Vinci uh, was on his deathbed, he died weeping, actually, in the arms of the King of France, having realised on his deathbed that he had missed the whole purpose of life. So he discovered that he lacked everything on his deathbed. If we could discover that tonight, then we have an advantage over him. So, who am I? Well, when we try to answer it, it gets difficult. If I say that I am tall or small, these are simply attributes of the body. If I say that I'm intelligent or stupid, these are attributes of the mind. If I say that I'm caring or selfish, then these are attributes of the heart. So, these are the attributes of the body, mind and heart. But what are my attributes? And so the question remains, who or what am I? If we look at it a different way, the experience of the body is pleasure and pain only. The experience of the mind is clarity and confusion, etc. And the experience of the heart are feelings of joy and sorrow and jealousy and anger. Now these are the experiences of the body, mind and heart. But what is my experience? What is the experience of I? Now, interestingly, despite these three completely different types of experience, deep down, there's the feeling that there's only one of me. Hermes Trismegistus, the Egyptian philosopher, he said, For you see and speak, hear and smell, touch, walk about, think and breathe, there is not one who sees and another who hears, one who speaks and another who touches, one who smells and another who walks, one who thinks and another who breathes. There is a single one who does all these things. So there is only one I in truth. Now, we can say I am. We all know that we exist. So it would be ludicrous for us to go up to somebody and tell them that we didn't exist. It just would not be convincing in any way. 
So we do know that I am, but what am I? So again, let us look at it in a different way. If we look at three words, action, acting, and actor. For every action, there is an actor. Rambo is a set of actions, and Sylvester Stallone is the actor. Now, this requires a stretch of imagination, but if you come with me on that point, <laughs> right, that Sylvester Stallone is the actor. Sylvester Stallone is not Rambo. And we are not confused by that, even if he is slightly. All our actions require that there be an actor behind them. Mothering is a set of actions. And I am not the set of actions. So I cannot be the mother. I'm the actor. It's not someone else acting through me. So who is this actor? Now, whatever the activity, whether it be accounting or gardening, there's an actor behind them, and the actor is not the actions. If I say I'm a conservative accountant or a patient mother, then this is a style of acting, and the style of acting is not the actor. So who is this actor? Well, what we normally describe as ourselves is the actions, our roles, like I'm a mother, or the acting, like I am shy. But the actor is unknown to us. Yet it definitely exists, for all the actions need an actor behind them. So the question remains, do we know who we are? And if we look at it in another way, if I use the phrase, my watch... When I say my watch, I'm proclaiming the existence of two things, a watch and an owner. And the important thing is that the qualities of the watch are not the qualities of the owner. Now, we say my body, so we might say my body's in bits. Well, then we're proclaiming the existence of two things, a body and an owner. Or we might say my mind is confused. And we're proclaiming the existence of two things, a mind and an owner. Or we say, my heart is troubled. And again, we're proclaiming a heart and an owner. So there's a body, a mind, a heart, and an owner. So who's the owner? Now, anything that is made, is made for someone else's sake, and not for its own sake. So the watch is not made for its own sake, but for the owner. And the same with TVs and cars and all things made. Now the body is made, but for whose sake is it made? And the same applies to mind and heart. So for whose sake does the body, mind and heart exist? Now, if we look at the body, the mind and the heart, what we see is that they all change. So the body gets older and wider and the mind changes its mind about doing the lawn this weekend and the heart loves somebody you know, in January and then dislikes them in March. So these three change. But the point is that if we can tell change there must be something in us that doesn't change. And every one of us can tell change. 
we can say that the weather is better today than it was two days ago. So every human being can tell change. But in order to tell change, there has to be something in us that's not changing. And to give an example, if you take a little boy, we make him a three or a four year old boy, and he's concerned about his height. He thinks he's not growing. So he asks his father, Dad, am I growing? And the father says, yes, you're definitely growing. And the little boy says, how can you be sure? And the father says, well, I remember when you were much smaller. And the little boy says, well, my mother says you have a rotten memory because you're always forgetting anniversaries and things like that. So how do I know your memory is accurate in this occasion? Now, the father has done 25 years of practical philosophy, so he's a remarkably patient person. So he takes this little boy and he puts him up against the kitchen door and he inserts the knife with remarkable restraint just above the little boy's head into the door. And he marks, and the boy's name is Sean, so he says, Sean, the 20th of November, 2008. And then he waits for a period of time, let's say a year, and he marks it again. And in this way, he proves to the boy that his body is growing. Now, the question is, why doesn't the father use a tree? It would be useless to use a tree, because a tree is also growing. So we would not be able to tell change if we use something that did change. So in order to determine change, we have to use something that does not change. And all of us can tell change. So there must be something in us that doesn't change. But the body changes and the mind changes and the heart changes. So there must be a fourth factor. And it doesn't change. Now, if it doesn't change, then it was never born. Because birth is a change. And also, it must never die. Because death is a change. So whatever this fourth factor is, it's eternal. Now what do some of the wise or the enlightened say about who I am in truth? They say that I am pure bliss, that I am limitless knowledge, that I am unconditional love, that I am free, that I am eternal and that I am ever at peace. Now, if we do not know that we are bliss, knowledge, love, that we're totally free, eternal, and ever at peace, and if this is not our constant experience, then the wise say we do not know who we are. And according to the Gospel of St. Thomas, we therefore lack everything. Now, looking at it from a different point of view, why is it very important to know who we are? Well, if this is unknown to us, then we do not know our function in life. We do not know how to truly relate, how to direct our lives, what our goal is, our destiny, and the means of attaining it. And without this, our lives must be a failure. To fulfill the use of something, we must know what it is. Otherwise, there's limited use or abuse. So if you take, uh, say, a child and you, he manages to find a wood chisel, but he doesn't know what its use is, 
then he will either use it in a limited way or he will abuse it. Taking another example, if I said to you, I want you to go out to the reception area here and bring me back a blog double of. Now, you needn't worry about the fact that you don't know what a blog double of is because it's a makey-up word, right? There is no such thing. But anyway, if I sent you out looking for a blog double of and there happened to be one and somebody gave it to you, you wouldn't know whether you were meant to eat it, put it on your head, wear it around your neck, throw it in the fire or whatever. You cannot make full use of something unless you know what it is. And the analogy that's sometimes given is, and you have to use your imagination for this, but if you can imagine an aeroplane landing safely in a jungle and then being abandoned. So a little while later, one of the natives of the jungle comes across this aeroplane and considers it to be a very fancy cart. So he straps two bullocks to it and he's dragged this little aeroplane around and he's remarkably popular at the village disco on a Saturday night because he definitely has the best cart in the whole village. Anyway, after a while fiddling around with this thing, he discovers the ignition, gets the engine going and now not only does he have the sleekest cart in the village, he also has the fastest one. So he's roaring up and down these very wide pathways that you occasionally get in jungles. <laughs> anyway, after another while he discovers the flaps and then he can fly. Now, the possibility that our lives are the equivalent of Ferraris being used as tractors. We do not know, or the vast, vast majority of mankind does not know who I am. Man is certain of his existence, but not what he is. And nature abhors a vacuum. So the vacuum is filled. And it's filled with a false eye, and it's done by a mechanism in the mind. It's filled by identification. Now, this is not the etymology of the word, but if you divide the word identity into two, you can, can come up with the word id and entity. And id represents your true self, and entity represents anything. It could be a feeling like sadness, or it can be an object in the creation, or a thought in the mind. But by means of identification, the id joins the entity, and we get an identity. We become the object. And it's just done via the mind. Now the entity is simply a thought. We become our thoughts and forgo the truth about ourselves. However, the experience in deep sleep is of no identity. Nobody has an identity when they're deeply asleep. We're not Irish, we're not mother or father or accountant, we're not overdrawn, we're not anything. We simply are a being asleep. So this identity phenomenon is confined only to the waking and dreaming states. It doesn't always exist. So, we have thoughts about the body, and as I said before, we say I'm tall. Or we have thoughts about the mind, we say I'm intelligent. And we have thoughts about the heart and we say, I'm unhappy. Albeit untrue and imaginary, they determine our experience of life. 
So in my case, I experienced life as an Irish, tall, male, reasonably intelligent, etc., etc. They're all a series of identifications. They're all untrue. And yet this is my experience of life. It is simply what the mind thinks I am. And as we all know, the mind is prone to many and serious errors. These thoughts have nothing to do with who you are in truth. When somebody asks you, who are you? We give them our name. But that name was given to us. We came into the world without a name. So who were you before you had a name? Now we need names so that we can be referred to, but they are nothing to do with who we are. Sometimes... We describe ourselves by our function. So we say, I'm a doctor or a housewife or whatever. But these are simply occupations or activities. They tell us nothing about who we are. Who are we when we're totally inactive, when there's no occupation? Now, the person may go away thinking, I know him. He's Fred the doctor. And just as with something false, we may fool others, but we cannot fool ourselves. Portraying ourselves as the ego, we may fool others, but not ourselves, not deep down. Now, the ego is like the circumference of a wheel, but do we know the center? At the circumference is the maximum movement, and at the center there's perfect stillness. All the wear and tear is at the circumference. The centre is unchanging. Now to know this false I, the ego, is to know who I am not. Now what's important about this false I is that it's not constant. In fact, it's constantly changing. There's a, a thousand false eyes in any one day. With every new thought, there's a new identity, a new false I. So just consider how many thoughts we've had today. Well, for every one, there was a new identity. So we're a bit like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but instead of having only two personalities, we have about a thousand and two. And there's no connection between these thoughts, none whatsoever. They're all completely independent. So if, for example, you go to a party on a Friday night and you have a few pints and around 10 or 11 somebody says, what about a game of golf tomorrow? You say, fantastic, excellent. I'd really love to play golf with you tomorrow. In fact, why don't we go out really early, get ahead of the crowd? How about 8 o'clock on the first tee? I'll see you there. All right. Now, that's that character who's at the party. However, the next morning when the alarm goes off at 7 o'clock, there's a completely different character now lying in the bed and considers it the best place to be on a Saturday morning. In fact, the guy who's lying in the bed on Saturday morning hates that person that he's meant to play golf with and thinks playing golf at 8 o'clock is simply for those who are insane. This happens all the time. Maybe on Saturday you catch your profile as you walk past the mirror and you say to yourself, right, I'm going on a diet on Monday. Do you think that person is around on Monday? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, 
That character is replaced by a cake-guzzling fiend <laughs> who thinks that being round has its own attractions. <laughs> now, at any point in time, there's only one I. And this is believed to be totally true and there's no trace of any other I at that point in time. So when I am happy, there's no trace of I am sad. Even though I've been sad very many times in my life. But when I am happy, there's no trace of I am sad. When I'm angry, there's no trace of I am patient. And when there's I'm so stupid, there's no trace of I am intelligent. And because there's only one I at any one point in time, and because memory gives the illusion of continuity, there is the belief in a constant I. And because we believe it to be constant, we take it to be real. However, this false I is constantly changing. So again, sometimes we say to ourselves, oh, I'd love to be a millionaire. And we struggle really hard to accumulate vast quantities of wealth. And then the thought occupies our mind, what would I give for the simple life? You know, a little thatched cottage in the West, growing organic carrots and selling them at a nominal profit for the benefit of mankind. And that's the way it is. Now, because of the time gap between these opposite ideas, we think we are sane. So, for example, if I said to you at nine o'clock on a Monday morning, I love my wife. And then at quarter past nine, I say to you, I hate my wife. And then at 9.30, I say to you, I truly adore my wife. You think I'm absolutely mad. However, if in 2006, I tell you that I love my wife, and in 2009, I tell you I hate my wife, you think I'm simply married. <laughs> as long as the time gap is reasonable you think I'm sane but if we get the time gap to be very short then you think I'm mad the only thing that's keeping us out of a lunatic asylum is the time gap between our changes of ideas now occasionally two I thoughts come close together in time and then there's confusion I'm torn between the two I want to watch the Heineken Cup quarterfinals and yet I promised my mother I'd bring her shopping for that wallpaper for the downstairs loo so I'm torn between the two however what's very important to realise is that both thoughts do not present themselves at the same time they actually alternate very rapidly like a neon light now, some of these thoughts reside in our minds for long periods of time. And these are the thoughts that we think will make me happy. So if I only have a Ferrari or something like that, then I will be happy. But thoughts have seasons or phases in which they exist. And as said, while operating, I think that this is what will make me happy. So when I'm a little boy or little girl, I think a doll or a toy gun will make me happy. And let's say I'm a little boy, and if I can only get a teddy, then I'll be just so happy. And in fact, when I do get teddy, I am really happy. 
and Teddy has breakfast with me. He gets to actually taste a bit of the breakfast. I bring him to the bath with me. I bring him to bed with me and all sorts of things. And we have prolonged conversations together. But at age 10, I haven't a clue where Teddy is anymore. He got abandoned a long time ago. In fact, if my mother reproduced Teddy to show all my 10-year-old friends this thing that I used to bring to the bath and the bed with me, I'd want to kill my mother because I'm a big boy now, right? And I have big boy's thoughts. So, as life goes on, it may be music and clothes. This is what will make me happy. And after a while, then, it's traveling the world and discovering myself. Or maybe a degree, so I can fool some of the world that I have a modicum of intelligence. And then it goes on to buying a house, perhaps, and getting a car, and being married, and having a successful career. But then 40 comes along, and you've been skipped over for the last few promotions. So now what will make me happy is the success of the children. Since I'm not a success, I'm just going to... Diverted to them. And it goes on and on. Health insurance starts to become important. Because the arthritis now, I can feel it. As I get out of the bed. And I start reading about all those horrendous diseases. And maybe she wouldn't stay with me if I got one of them. So I will need the health insurance. And then it becomes a draft-proof house. And so you put in triple glazing. And doors that when they seal, it's like being in a sardine can. And then there's a comfortable chair, which I refuse to be allowed to be thrown out. It doesn't match the rest of the suite anymore, but it's the only one I'm comfortable in. And I don't like people sitting in it, even when I'm not in the house. (laughs) Because it's my chair. And they do things like they change the angle of the chair to the telly. And there's only a particular, my eyesight is now going, and there's only a particular angle I can actually see the thing clearly. And then it really goes downhill. It's an electric blanket. Now, when you were young, you promised yourself that you would never, ever, ever have an electric blanket. Because you are so tough, right? (laughs) Anyway, you can now feel the cold through your thin skin. So we need this electric blanket. And in the end, the real tragedy is an electric blanket with twin controls. (laughs) Because you don't agree about anything anymore, right? Not even the temperature of the bed. (laughs) And then it's an inflation-proof pension scheme. And in the end, it's a burial plot with space for two and a view. My mother, when she got to her 70s, dragged me to one of these cemeteries to pick out her burial plot. And she went looking for one with a view. (laughs) I I was never able to satisfactorily work out for whose sake was the view. But anyway, she got it. Now, these thoughts will never make us happy. They never do and they never will. The thoughts that you and I have right now are the equivalent of Teddy for a four-year-old. That's the way they are. Now, because of extreme habit of identification, we have no control over our minds and hearts. In fact, we are controlled by the thoughts in our minds and the feelings in our hearts. Instead of being free men and women, we're slaves. So, if you were to take say the body, say 
We met someone and they had cerebral palsy. So they had uncontrolled physical movements. A natural compassion might arise for the fact that they can't control their bodies as others might. But the fact is, we can't control our minds. So, if you say to the mind some nights, go asleep, you can do nothing about this. Does it go asleep? Or does it continue to think about it? If I asked you not to think about an elephant for the next five minutes, within 30 seconds there would be a herd of them in the room. <laughs> if you say to the heart, stop worrying, does it stop worrying? Or you say to the heart, don't get angry. When we go to Aunt Nellie's this afternoon, you're not to get angry. You know, she's always passing comments about your appearance. You absolutely promise to yourself, I'm not going to get angry this time. And as you come through the door, she says, who cut your hair? And you think, right, euthanasia is justified in certain circumstances. Now, what are the fruits of living this false eye? Well, they're so depressing, I'm not going to tell you the majority of them, but I am going to discuss three of them. The first one is separation. Identification, the creation of a false I, leads to separation. My I is different from everybody else's I. If someone is proclaiming his I, we say, he has a big ego. Now, if their eye is a little different from ordinary eyes, we say, he's interesting. If their eye is very, very different from ordinary eyes, we say, he's odd. Now, we don't want to be odd, but we want to be interesting. So we've spent our whole lives trying to be a bit different, so that we're interesting, but not so different that people think we're odd. And we like our differences. And we try to create them at times. So let's say, for the first time in your life, you've gone to the International Film Centre in Dublin, which shows those weird Peruvian and French films that only about ten people around the world have ever gone to see. But anyway, you go to one for the first time. It's a French film. So you think you let everybody know in the office the next morning. So you come into the office and say, oh, by the way, I was at this uh, French film last night. Very, very subtle as only the French can do. It's an excellent film. Excellent, excellent. I thoroughly recommend it. Now, you've really proclaimed that you think this film is excellent. And somebody else in the group that you're talking to says, actually, I saw that film, and I thought it was the greatest load of rubbish I've ever seen. So now, and everybody's looking at you, right? <laughs> so you think, right. Okay. Well, actually, on reflection... Perhaps it wasn't as good as I thought. Perhaps it was only good in bits. That it started off well, but ended disappointingly. And this is what we're trying to do all the time. We're trying to be a bit different, so that everybody will notice us, but not so different that everybody's staring at us. For example, if we attend philosophy one night a week, people think that's very interesting. If you attend seven nights a week, they think you're completely mad. Isolation leads to a sense of incompleteness. And then there arises the desire for people and things to complete my life. So a wife thinks that a husband should make her happy. And as every wife knows, that's simply impossible. 
that belief then is that without them, I am nothing. So husband without wife thinks he is nothing, or mother without child. The feeling of incompleteness leads to the need to relate to all the other false eyes, so that they will complete my life. The false I then becomes a different person to different people. Now I'm going to exaggerate, but you take, let's say, a rugby player, and when he's in the shower after the game, and there's another 28 of them all standing under the one little tap head that's dripping out a tiny bit of cold water, they discuss things like the capacity to take pain, the strength of Budweiser, how aftershave is for sissies, and things like that. And they're the sort of conversations. Now, if that same rugby player goes home and his mother-in-law has dropped in for the afternoon, he doesn't talk about the capacity to consume alcohol and all these things. He talks about the sanctity of marriage. <laughs> right? Because he is married to her daughter. All right? He also talks about the care of the elderly. That always goes down. <laughs> Which, which always goes down extremely well, right? And he talks about you know, the education of the young. Anyway, if you do those three, now you blend it in, all right? If he goes to the bank manager for a loan, he doesn't talk about the care of the elderly or he doesn't talk about aftershave. He talks about prudence and the necessity of living within your means despite his temporary need for an insane overdraft of about 500,000. And he talks about keeping your word, and all these sorts of things. Now this is a very difficult game to play, and we're all playing it. We're always wondering, who should I be in front of this person? And this is why we ask questions. When we go to parties, we ask a few questions, see if we can fit the person in. So, so we might ask them their name. Simon. We try to read into that Simon. Is that Protestant Catholic? <laughs> Sounds educated. <laughs> All right. And, uh, okay. And then, anyway, when you ask them what they do, and he says he's a nuclear physicist, you think, good grief. Right. I'm going to talk about gardening tonight. You take a, a, a safe subject. Now, it's absolutely exhausting, this trying to decide who you should be depending on who the person is in front of you. It's totally false. And so every so often it's nice to go away on our own because we don't know anybody and we can just be ourselves. And in a pair of Bermuda shorts, nobody knows whether I sweep the streets or I'm the managing director of an organisation. But in a fortnight, I really want to go home and tell everybody what a wonderful holiday I had away from them. Right. Now, the second fruit of this false I is that I am the centre of the whole universe. Everything is happening around me. And everything is personalised. What is present is not what is experienced, but is determined by what I arises to meet the event. An I formed from the accumulated past. If you're selling a house, the eye that's selling the house sees one house. The eye that's buying the house sees another house. The eye that's the quantity surveyor or whatever sees a third house. 
It depends which eye is operating. And you sometimes find this in, say, buying an article of clothing. As a potential buyer, you see the article of clothing, but as the owner, you see it completely differently. I've told this story before, but when I was about 21, 22, there was a shop in Grafton Street called FX Kelly's. And this had very sophisticated clothes. So sophisticated, I could never afford to buy the clothes. I was more a Dunn Stores type person. But anyway, they had very sophisticated clothes. So they had Italian trousers and French trousers. Anyway, there was a massive Christmas sale on. So I go in there, and there's a pair of Italian trousers for six pounds. Now, they were marked down from 24 pounds. So this is a 75% discount. So the lust for a bargain filled this heart. And I was determined that I was going to have Italian trousers. Anyway, so I go downstairs to the changing room. And I try to put them on. It starts to get very tight around the knees. I only get as far as the knees. Because whatever way they make Italians, they make Irish people completely differently. So they're very tight around the knees. Anyway, with a superhuman effort, I get them up and a complete withdrawal of air from my stomach. I get the zip up and the thing closed. So now with an impending heart attack, I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I'm thinking, fantastic, look at the cut of those trousers. Right? Now, they were obscenely tight, all right? Well, I was determined for five quid, imagine Italian trousers. Uh, with another in- incredible intake of breath, I get the things off again. And I go home and I must have been older, actually, I must have been 25. Because I go home to my wife and I say, I've got this pair of Italian trousers waiting to see them. So I rush upstairs. <laughs> Another incredible intake of breath and the trousers are on, zip closed, everything. And I come downstairs and she takes one look at them and she says, they're obscene. <laughs> right? And so I never wore them. I thought obscenity might have its advantages, but it didn't. <laughs> anyway. But that's what happens, you see. The owner eye is a different than the buyer eye. Everything is personalised and being personalised has a false value. So, this man follows Manchester United. And so I'm completely and utterly prejudiced when it comes to Manchester United. And I also have a remarkably good memory when it comes to Manchester United. So I know that they won the European Cup the first time in 1968. I know that they won 4-1 and they were playing playing Benfica. I can describe the goals. I know who got the goals and how they all led up. Now Celtic won the European Cup the year before. I don't know who they were playing, what the score was, or who the members of the team were. We cannot watch anything or experience anything without prejudice. So for watching Ireland playing England in the rugby match and the referee makes a mistake in our favour and we're awarded a try, we think, well, that was simply good fortune and you have to be a sportsman about these things. You have to accept the rough with the smooth and all that. It's all part of the game. Until the referee a half an hour later now awards an invalid try against us for England. Now we think he should be shot. He's completely incompetent and how did they ever let him out? If you remember, many years ago, Michelle Smith apparently won four gold medals. 
Can anybody remember who came second in any of the races? We think it must have been a swimmer, but that's about it. (laughs) We cannot listen because everything is filtered through an eye. So I, the trade unionist, hears something completely different than I, the employer. I, the purchaser, I, the Christian, I, the rich, the poor, the capitalist, the socialist, I, the male, and I, the female, are all hearing different things because it's all personalised. And this eye is very, very sensitive. It's sensitive to criticism and it's sensitive to praise. So if somebody says, my car is fantastic, I grin like a Cheshire cat. If somebody said, my car is boring, well then I'm very upset. Now the comments are directed to the car. They're talking about the car and I'm the one who's getting upset. This is what personalization does. We experience a world which is not there and not true and miss the real world. And the third factor is rigidity. As life progresses, the imprints in our hearts and minds grow deeper and deeper. They're like ruts in the track. And so we have the same old reactions, the same old conversations. And if we're asked questions, we always give the same answers. So if we're married for a long while, in the end, our partner even answers for us. So you're at, you know, somebody's house for afternoon tea, something like that, and the lady of the house asks the man, would you like some cake? And from about a yard to the left, there's the answer, no, he wouldn't, right? And on hearing those words, he comes out of his dream world, and his manly pride arises, and he deeply considers the question, will I have cake? And after about 20 seconds of the deepest consideration he's had for a long, long time, he says, I don't think I will this time. It gets harder and harder to act outside these circles or ruts. After a while, we've no new friends. and Life is just a series of patterns. Remember that film, Shirley Valentine? The reason we laughed is because we recognized ourselves. You know, it's Thursday, so it's steak and chips or whatever. This rigidity leads to a great increase in negative feelings. Lots of irritation. This is why sometimes when people get older, they become more and more irritable. And we get angry if things are not just the way they should be, or the way we would like them to be. So when I come home in the evening, I like the remote control to be within arm's reach of that chair of mine. Because sometimes I sit down and then I find that this remote control is not within arm's reach and I have to get all the way up again and walk 10 feet across to another chair and get the remote control. And when you find this, this is the way it is, we like our tea in a particular way. Because at the time we're 60 or 70, we like it with two slightly heaped teaspoons of sugar. Whatever that is. (laughs) How could anybody know what a slightly heaped teaspoon of sugar is? Our lives become mechanical lives and not conscious lives and we react and don't respond. It's like putting questions to a computer. Now I know you won't like this but this is true anyway so I have to tell you that if you can imagine a situation where you go away on your summer holidays and this false eye is operating so you decide we're going to go away in August so it's down to the old travel agencies you go to about three or four of them you come back with these colossal 
volumes full of glorious pictures of faraway places. And so for three nights in a row, you stay up till 12 o'clock with these books on the kitchen table, going through every single location and turning over the interesting pages, marking the interesting pages. Anyway, after about three days, you've now narrowed it down from 3,000 possible locations to six. At this stage, you need a holiday or so exhausted trying to pick one, right? Anyway, you eventually get it down to that one place and you go on that holiday. Well, it was all predetermined. Completely and totally predetermined which holiday you would go on. It is not the exercise of free will or choice or error. It is simply an I character reacting to whatever is put in front of it. Now, to turn to practical philosophy. Everyone seeks happiness, freedom, love, knowledge and life or consciousness. Why is this? Why do six billion people all seek these things? Well, the reason why is because it's our very nature. And why do so few succeed? Well, it's because desire is not sufficient. Ignorance seeking will not be successful. It must be sought wisely. We must have knowledge or understanding. So what is practical philosophy? Well, it is the practice and realization of wisdom in one's own being in daily life. And practical philosophy has two aspects to it, fundamentally. One is the expansion of our knowledge, and the second one is the uplifting or refinement of our being. And man with only one is not much use. So, if you know what you should do, but you haven't got the strength to do it, nothing much happens. If, however, you have the capacity to do an awful lot, but you don't know which thing you should be doing, you end up with an error-strewn life. And we may recognize this at times, where we know what we should do, but we haven't got the strength to do it. Or we've plenty of capacity to do many things, but we don't know which thing we should be doing now. With true knowledge and refinement of being, we enjoy higher levels of consciousness. And why does philosophy say that this is so important to enjoy higher levels of consciousness? Because the lower the level of consciousness, the more limited your capacity is. So if a person is in deep sleep, all they can probably do is maintain the life in the body and perhaps scratch themselves or something like that. That's it. If they manage to rise up to, say, sleepwalking, well, they maybe they can make themselves a banana sandwich and pour themselves a glass of milk. But there'll be no more to it if that was the only level of consciousness they enjoyed. If they wake up to the ordinary waking state, the state that you and I live most of our lives in, well, then they will perhaps go to university, have a career, maybe marry, get kids, end up with electric blankets and twin controls, and finally a burial plot with space for two. It's an ordinary life. But if you wake up to the highest level of consciousness, then you enjoy absolute freedom and absolute bliss. The other thing that's very important about the levels of consciousness is that if you take the dream state, when you're in a dream, you take the dream to be real. 
So if you're dreaming that there's a tiger chasing you, you can't say to yourself, this is only a dream tiger, I don't have to run. Your little dream legs run as fast as they can to get away from the tiger. Because in the dream, whatever the contents of the dream are, are taken to be real. But when you wake up, everything that you had taken to be real in the dream is now seen to be unreal. However, we then make a terrible mistake. Because we now take that whatever is in the waking state is actually real. But what would happen if you woke up out of the waking state, the ordinary waking state, to the highest level of consciousness? You might find that all the things that we take to be real are not real. In fact, that there is no misery in this world. There's no injustice. None of these things at all. They exist in a dream world, but not in the real world. So is our ordinary waking state real or unreal? Like, is this real or unreal? And how do you know? How do you know you're not going to wake up? That you've been in a dream for a long, long time. And you're just going to wake up and you'll find that none of this is real. Well, only in the highest state of consciousness do we know what is true and what is false. There's a famous story told from the East about a king called King Jonica. And he was in his court one afternoon and he felt drowsy and fell asleep. And in his dream he dreamt that another king came and overthrew him and abducted his wife and children and he had to flee for his life. So he was without the comfort of his family, he was without friends or wealth or anything and he ran away into the forest and it was cold and wet and dark and he was exceptionally hungry. But he came across a few people who shared a small amount of food with him and he took it to his campsite and he started to cook the food. And just as he was about to eat it, two fighting boars came into the campsite and destroyed the food. And such was his anguish that he wept bitter tears in his dream. But so real was the dream that real tears poured down his face. And the moisture of these tears caused him to wake up. So he's now awake again in the court. And he asked one of the most profound questions that any human being has ever asked. He asked, Am I a beggar now dreaming that I am a king? Or am I a king that was dreaming that I am a beggar? How do you know? In the waking state, all our problems, all our identification occurs. And the dreaming state is only based on impressions gathered from the waking state. In deep sleep, there's no identification, no problems, no overdraft, etc., etc. And also in the highest level of consciousness, there is no identification. And because there's no identification, there are no problems. Now, two things to beware of when told of the possibilities for and potentiality of man. The first thing is scepticism. That we dismiss that it's possible to be blissfully happy all the time. Because we're sceptical. 
However, the man who has never loved may doubt its existence. The man who has knows with certainty that it does exist and that every man can love truly. And the second thing is imagination. And there was a lady who was doing the part one philosophy class in Dublin and she related this incident to me. She had got a taxi to the school building and the taxi driver inquired of her what she was going to be doing that evening. She said, oh, I'm going to a philosophy class. And he said to her, imagine how boring the world would be if everybody was wise. Now, these are not the wise words of a wise taxi driver. And there's a marvellous quotation from a piece of scripture called the Matnawi, and it says, But if any man awakes, him the nurse imagination beguiles, saying, Go to sleep, my darling, for I will not let anyone disturb thy slumber. But you, if you are wise, will tear up your slumber by the roots like the thirsty man who hears the sound of running water. Now, every one of us wakes up every so often. We get moments when we come out of the dream of our life and we really question, what am I doing? and Why am I doing it? Or is there something more important that I should be doing? But the tragedy is we go back asleep again. Now, sometimes if something very adverse happens to you, you wake up. And I'm just going to tell you this story about a man that I know. I didn't have this conversation, but I know the man. And anyway, a couple of years ago, his daughter in her mid-twenties died of some viral infection after a very short illness. And this was a major, major shock to him. And he said to this friend of mine, he said, I no longer understand what life is about. All the things that I thought were valuable and important, I no longer think are valuable and important. And all the things that I thought were unimportant and not so valuable, I now realize are truly important and really valuable. But I understand nothing anymore. Now, you have heard that story. You might think that's a terrible tragedy. And at one level, it is a tragedy. But most likely for this man, the real tragedy has yet to happen. And the real tragedy for this man is that within a short number of years, he will revert back to his old life again. And all the things that he knew were unimportant will become important again. And all the things that he'd realized were important will fade into the background again. So if you wake up, never go back to sleep again. Be like the thirsty man who hears the sound of running water. Now what are the benefits of knowing who I am? Well, the game changes from striving to be this or that to simply being yourself. So who are we? The Shankaracharya, the man that the School of Philosophy put all its questions to, he said, If you begin to be what you are, you will realize everything. But to begin to be what you are, you must come out of what you are not. You are not those thoughts which are turning, turning in your mind. You are not those changing feelings. You are not the different decisions you make and the different wills you have. 
You're not that separate ego. Well then, what are you? You will find when you've come out of what you are not that the ripple on the water is whispering to you, I am that. The birds in the trees are singing to you, I am that. The moon and the stars are shining beacons to you, I am that. You are in everything in the world and everything in the world is reflected in you. And at the same time, you are that. This is the promise of true philosophy. This is the guarantee of true philosophy. The discovery of the truth about yourself. It is a movement from ignorance to understanding, from misery to bliss, from desire to love, and from bondage to freedom. So do you need philosophy? Well, the Shankaracharya elsewhere said that the inquiry into philosophy begins in the following way. In the worldly setup, people go to work and get their wages, and the wages are used to buy goods they need, and goods are bought and used for pleasure. But pleasure is not the same as the peace of the self or contentment in liberation. Wages, goods, and derived pleasures do not ultimately bring in the peace of the self. And thus follows the inquiry into philosophy. And later on he says, people in general become involved in the money they earn, the goods they possess, or the type of pleasure at which they aim, and so miss the ultimate aim of the peace of the self. This peace of the self should never be lost from their sight. Now if we do not realise that there is something beyond wages, goods and derived pleasures, something which brings untold happiness, then at this point in time, we don't need philosophy. So do you need philosophy? Well, can your mind stay in the present moment? And if not, then you need philosophy. Can you stop worrying? And if not, then you need philosophy. Do you depend on other things for your happiness? And if you do, then you need philosophy. Do you love unconditionally? And if not, you need philosophy. And has fear gone from your life? And if not, you need philosophy. Are you true to yourself? Did you stick to the vision you had for your life? Or have you compromised? And if you have, then you need philosophy. If you knew you were going to die tonight, would you die satisfied? And if you wouldn't, then you need philosophy. And are you free? And if not, you need philosophy. And do the events of life cause you to lose the peace of yourself? Then you need philosophy. And are you perfectly happy and fulfilled now? And if not, you need philosophy. Do you know who you are? And if not, then in the words of the Gospel of St. Thomas, you lack everything. So why accept this? Why not dedicate your life to the pursuit of wisdom? And this will involve, at least in the school, meditation, the study of the words of the wise and enacting them in your life, and thirdly, self-examination. So why not have a go and start the great human adventure to discover the truth about yourself?
Thank you very much. So, what would you like to ask? I'm just inquiring about the point of being the observer and what you suggest to do daily that you can keep yourself in that observer viewpoint. Right, okay. Well, when the mind, when I say mind, I mean mind-heart, when the mind is very agitated, it forgets lots of things. Even if you put a case in front of the front door to remind yourself that you have to bring this with you into the office but you leave the house in an agitated state you will actually step over the case to get out the front door so the mind in agitation forgets it therefore remembers when it's still so the key is for the mind to be still anything that is conducive to stillness of mind assists memory when the mind is actually still, it cognizes or remembers that ever-present observer. It just becomes aware of something that's in presence. The very best thing, then, for helping stillness of mind is meditation. It's the very best technique available to man. Because what happens ordinarily is that our mind accumulates all sorts of ideas and feelings which keep churning over and over and over again. It goes over the same things. What meditation does is it washes the mind and heart of the past. You become like a child again. You become innocent. You live in the present moment. So the key is stillness, and the master key to stillness is meditation. Then, let's say at a lower level, you'll find that there are certain ideas which you hold, let's say, about yourself, which are not conducive to stillness. So if you held an idea about yourself that you were superior to other people, you would find that's quite agitative. If you hold an idea that you're inferior to others, or that you're not good at this or not good at that, well, you'll find that agitates. We may have developed all sorts of traits in our hearts, like the capacity to lose our temper all the time. We have to work at those things so that the mind and heart remain still. Not only do you then remember or reconnect with this observer, but you stop making all the mistakes that you make in life. For example, really, unless you're an absolute pig of a person, it's impossible to overeat if you pay attention while you're eating. We're doing Sudoku or we're having conversations or we're planning the future or something like that while we're eating and we tend to wake up when there's pressure from within but if you actually taste the food as you eat it then you'll know when to stop the body tells you when to stop and it's exactly the same with conversation you see yourself about to lose your temper so you won't lose your temper you see yourself about to say something that's inappropriate and you won't say it so self-awareness comes with stillness of mind. And that's why all the great religions and all the great philosophies have advocated some methodology of bringing about that stillness. Does that answer the question? Yeah, okay. Yes, anybody else? We are immersed in the apparatus of society. Yes. Language, church, school, 
trade unions, like you mentioned. And oftentimes we're happy to listen to any trade unionists talking about the budget or something. Yes. They're very true to themselves in living that identity. Now, obviously, we have a true self, something that is unchanging. Yet it's happy to live something that's fleeting, here today, gone tomorrow. So is it possible that the true self can be very, very happy and fulfilled, living a fleeting identity? Well, the first thing is the true self doesn't live the fleeting identity. That is a false self. The true self doesn't live amongst the transitory at all. The false self, it's an imaginary I. It's done by identification or association with the body, the mind, or the heart. It also is not satisfied in the transitory. So, the heart seeks long-term relationships. It doesn't like to be in love on a Monday and be filled with dislike on a Tuesday. It likes to love for prolonged periods of time. If we buy a house, we like a title deed to it, which says we can own it for 999 years, even though our life expectancy is about 50 years. But we want a 999-year lease. We like things to be permanent. Even this false self is seeking the true nature. But it's seeking it in the wrong place. When you're young, you might form an image in your mind of a sum of money that would satisfy you. If I only earned X, then I would be content. But what you find is it keeps moving. There isn't a sum of money in which you can find satisfaction. Man is always looking for satisfaction in the transitory. If I said to you, whenever there has been happiness, true happiness for you, where did it arise? And it's not right to say in a beach or a bar or something like that. True happiness always arises within. It wells up inside of you. Now if true happiness always wells up inside of you, where would be the intelligent place to look for it? If you've put something in the attic and you decide to search the basement, it doesn't make any sense. Now, if your experience of happiness is always that it arises within you, the intelligent thing to do is to look for it within you. And that's actually where it is. Now, in ignorance, we look for it outside of ourselves. We look for it in the goodies of the world, which are all fleeting, which all pass. If I said to you, what sort of happiness do you want? You would say, I want permanent happiness. So I want it to be there on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, etc. You want it to last forever. Do you want it to be limited to when you're on the beach? Or when you're at work? Or when you're at home? You know, you want it everywhere. So we want a limitless, eternal happiness. And yet we seek it in that which is limited and transient. Now you cannot find the limitless and the eternal in the limited and transient. And a whole lot of limited and transient things do not add up to the limitless and the eternal. So, the key is to look for it in that which is limitless and eternal. And the great sages or the great teachers of mankind like Jesus have said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. But we look everywhere else. 
It's a sort of like an arrogant male thing, you know, when you get a new DVD player or something like that. We throw away the instruction book. We want to do it by ourselves. Well, it's the same way we throw away all the scriptures and all the words of the wise and we think I'm going to just do it by myself. But what we end up doing is imitating every previous generation. One must look within. This is the other point which didn't come out in the talk. Your true self is always happy. You can go to a film where there's death, injustice, deprivation and really enjoy it. And you can go to a romantic comedy and also really enjoy it. So you can go to any type of film and yet you're absolutely entertained and you thoroughly enjoy yourself. Well, your real self is like that. It's absolutely entertained by everything and really enjoys everything. It is the false self which is always complaining and always miserable. Always looking for that happiness which evades it. So, that's it. Anybody else? Would you consider aloneness to be the only true path to transformation into awareness? Yes, true aloneness now. The word alone originally meant all one. So to be alone is to be complete, to be all one. You and I form an identity, which means that we're not all at one with others. And again, I've told this story before, but when I trained to be an accountant, I had a very strong idea of being a professional man. You know, sort of an arrogant idea about what a professional man is. Anyway, we're now married, we have a house, and this superior professional man was incapable of fixing most things in the house, including plumbing. So I had to call on a plumber to fix some leak in the house. And I was at home that day, and the thought crossed my mind now, when the plumber comes, should I just show him where the leak is, and then maybe I would leave and go into the sitting room and read something. Then the thought flashed, well, maybe he'd think I'm rude then. So maybe I should stay in the kitchen with him as he fixes it, but not interrupt him too much, but have some conversation. Then I thought, well, what will I say to a plumber? I can't talk about pipes and bending things. And I'm not going to talk to him about sources and use of fund statements or something, you know, accounting. So what will I do? So there was a struggle in my mind as to how this accountant would relate to that plumber. Anyway, as it so happened, along came the plumber. I stayed in the kitchen and there was an excellent conversation between two men while he fixed the plumbing. But see, as an accountant, you will not be alone. There will be another, a different other, like the plumber. And you'll find most of the time we experience other people as other. Again, if I give an exaggerated example, let's say... If anybody's called Aunt Nelly, by the way, you'll have to forgive me. But anyway, (laughs) we're going to Aunt Nelly's house pre-Christmas. And I'm a 16-year-old teenager. And Aunt Nelly's about 90. My mother says, go over and give her a hug. You think, oh, for God's sake. So you go over like this. And you try and keep your body apart from her body. And you try and make it the shortest hug possible, but which will not leave you out of the will. All right? (laughs) 
<laughs> but it's a very measured thing. And you're absolutely aware that you're either very close to your Aunt Nellie or you're actually touching each other. That's not a sense of aloneness. But when you truly love someone, or let's say your child runs up to you and says, I love you, Daddy, and you embrace each other, there's no sense of you holding them or them holding you. There's just a unity. Both identities have merged into one. And that's aloneness. That's the real aloneness. When the two become one. And what philosophy says is the apparent differences between you and me and you and everybody else are not true. Behind all those differences, there is a unity. There is aloneness. And the key is to discover that and then to live from there while you play the game of accountant or whatever. But you never leave that unity or aloneness. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, anybody else? There's a gentleman at the back there. Very much. First time I've been described as a gentleman. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, I was interested in your comment there about achieving calmness, stillness of mind. And you quite rightly mentioned that the best key, or the greatest key to achieving that was through meditation. However, just to pose a hypothetical situation, which is very common at the moment, mortgage repayments, children at school, ill health, telephone call from your friendly bank manager, Mr. Mulhall, yeah. to say, you're three months behind in your mortgage repayments. I don't think at that stage I have time for meditation. I don't have the five or ten minutes. There must be other portals, or there must be other keys to allow me to achieve that instant calmness and instant stillness of mind to reply and to make the proper retort or to handle myself properly in that sort of situation. And meditation alone, due to the practicalities of the situation, I'm afraid won't achieve the stillness and calmness which I want. I understand. Okay, very good. That's an excellent question. Now, I think you have a, a mistaken understanding about meditation and its fruits. And that's where the question really arises. It's a bit like this. Let's say I go to a gymnasium and I do exercises in the gymnasium and my body gathers a certain strength because of these exercises in the gymnasium. Once I leave the gymnasium, I don't become a weak wimp again. The strength that I have gained in the gymnasium is now carried in the body all day, every day. Meditation does exactly the same. When you meditate, what happens is you gain a remarkable depth of peace and calmness. But when the formal practice of meditation ends, it's not necessarily, and should not be, an end to that peace and calmness. Now you enter into the activity of life, but without foregoing that peace and calm. So that's what meditation does. It makes you a peaceful and calm person. And it's a bit like this. You become a professional. If you can imagine yourself as a learner driver, and for so long as you've got the driving instructor beside you and there's twin controls, you're able to drive properly. But the first time on your own, being an inexperienced driver and a juggernaut comes around the corner, you hit the accelerator as opposed to the brake in error. But as an experienced driver, you don't need any time 
the foot will naturally go to the brake. And so, if you become an experienced meditator and enjoy the benefits of meditation, you will find you don't need any time. You don't actually lose your calm. Your values change. And because your values change, you become unperturbed. You cannot be disturbed. It's very important that we get the correct values for life. Very, very important that we get them. And sometimes we have to be faced with great adversity before we wake up to true values. There is an exercise given in the part two philosophy, which I think teaches us true values. It asks us, how much do we value happiness? And most people say, well, happiness is absolutely central to my life. In fact, everything I do is in pursuit of happiness. And so the student is then asked, well, would you sell your happiness or sacrifices or give it up for a million euro? So if I give you a million euro, but you must forego your happiness, would you do it? The answer is obviously no. A hundred million, a billion, a trillion, doesn't make any difference. There would be no point in having the money if you didn't have happiness. What the student is asked is that if we would not exchange our happiness for a billion or a trillion, why is it every day we exchange it for tiny little things? For a puncture in our car? For a cup of coffee that's tepid? For a stain on our tie? We give away our happiness gladly with all these little events that befall us. And we become miserable. Do you ever drop your keys into a puddle? And you think, I can't go on. (laughs) Life is continually against me. It's so unfair. Nobody else's keys ever fall into puddles. So what happens with meditation or philosophy, and it also works with prayer, by the way. Prayer will do the same. But you'll find that you get the true values in life. And then you simply meet events. And a mortgage is an event. It's not a problem. Death is an event. It's not a problem. There are no problems. They're simply events. But we need to meet them as events. What we do is we add an emotional resistance to them. And again, to take from the Bible, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, resist not evil, which is amazing. So you have to really look at that. Why did he say that? And the reason why is because resistance magnifies the experience of the evil. If you resist a headache or a toothache or resist somebody being late on you, you find the pain multiplies and it dissolves on acceptance. Have you ever accepted that you're not getting on the plane? Even though you can see it out through the window. You can see it there. It hasn't taken off yet, but they've closed the doors. Before you accept it, it's a really painful experience. And you become stupid. You threaten to write to the Minister for Aviation, if there is such a one. But once you accept it, all the pain goes. So the wise man or woman accepts all of life and in that acceptance they do not suffer anything no suffering at all 
That's the way it works. Yes, anybody else? Yes, gentleman here. In your talk, you mentioned that we improve our chances of leading a blissful life if we attain what you call the highest level of consciousness. And can I ask you, one is, how do we get there? Two, how do we stay there? And three, can we actually stay there on an ongoing basis or do we flit in and out of it? Right, okay. I'll just answer the third one first, if I may. The third one is, initially you do flit in and out of it. A bit like, say, when you were a child at school, and on a Monday, you might be asked by your mother or father, what are seven sevens? And you say, 49. And on a Tuesday, your mother asks you the same question, you say, 243. And so you will flit from the right to the wrong answer until some magic happens. It goes from memory to understanding. And you don't know that moment where it goes from memory to understanding. You suddenly realize you now know why seven sevens are 49 and you never forget again. In the same way as a person in search of the truth about yourself, you will get entry into the higher levels of consciousness and you will enjoy moments or maybe short periods of living in that oneness or highest level of consciousness and then you'll fall back again. But then one day the experience will be so profound, so deep that it establishes it as a permanent forever. If an experience can be deep enough, you'll never forget it. So if I ask you, can you remember all the dogs who have ever wagged their tail at you? Because it was a non-experience, in the fullest sense of the word, you don't remember. But the one dog that bit you when you were age three, you can remember with remarkable clarity still. You can still see his shiny white teeth in your leg. Because it was a deep and profound experience. If the experience of the highest state of consciousness is totally deep and profound, then it remains as a constant. So that's the third one. And because I said all of that, I can't remember the first and the second one. The first one was... How do you get there and then how do you stay there? Well... It really is the same question as this lady asked, and how do you get there, in the sense that there are certain techniques. Prayer is one of them. Meditation is another. Totally surrendering is another, where you let go your identity. And again, I'm just going to take a Mickey Mouse example of that. Have you ever been walking in the rain and totally resisting it? And you try to make yourself smaller as you walk in the rain, thinner and smaller, so that less rain will fall on you. But five minutes later, you're like that drowned rat walking along. And there comes a point where you surrender. You just think, I'm wet. And then suddenly, you start to enjoy the walking again. Well, that is the surrender of your individual identity. It's your individual identity taken to be real, which keeps you in the lower level of consciousness. If you abandon that, you'll find that you'll enjoy higher levels of consciousness. But meditation or prayer are the most effective. Let's say you're a businessman and you have a meeting with people who have different roles than you. Let's say you're the owner and they're the trade union or you're the owner and they're the supplier or you're the owner and they're the customer. 
Well, if you really stick to your role as the owner, then it will be a lower level of consciousness which operates. The ideal thing is you participate in the event. Now, you have to play your role because there is the role of owner, but you're not confined to it. If you can do that, if you can learn to play, to play the parts which come to you without completely identifying with them, you will enjoy a much higher level of consciousness. And then how can it be maintained? There are two ways that things can become constant. One is through love and one is through understanding or reason. If I just take understanding, understanding is a constant. So seven sevens are 49, it's understood and it becomes a constant. If you practice what I have said, the experience will arise and with that experience will arise understanding. And then you won't be dependent on a nice environment to be happy. The understanding will be there. Say your name was Fred. Well, that knowledge will stay with you even if you're in a lousy humour. So if you're in an appalling humour and somebody says to you, what's your name? You don't say, well, look, I have to practice a bit of philosophy now to remember what's my name. That name is there. If you're very happy or very excited, the name will always be there. So the name becomes environment independent and understanding is environment independent so that's it is that right there's this gentleman here I'm not sure who put the figures together but amongst the reading I did it said that many people use 2% of their capacity or cerebral cortex or matter or brain power very capable people maybe 10% Albert Einstein maybe 15% when we sit here and we talk about wisdom about truth are we accessing maybe at the most 15% are the boundaries of philosophy far further out when we have this brain capacity and it was put in by intelligence and there's some block stopness accessing the greater proportion of it at some point in time will somebody in genetics come up with a dog's gene or a whale's gene or something well what we're saying with truth and knowledge will have worked the window most of it there's two points there one is most of what we take to be true will go out the window so I gave the example that when a person is in a dream they take what is in the dream to be real. But when they wake up, it's all false. Let's say you dream that you're getting a whole series of Christmas presents. So 25 Christmas presents. And you wake up. You won't find that you're reduced to three Christmas presents. They're all false because anything in the dream is unreal. So if we're not fully awake, then we take things to be real which are not real and they will all disappear. So there will be a 180 degree shift in understanding of what is true. It's not dependent on some whale gene or some scientist coming up with something to unblock the brain. The way nature works is this, is you use it or you lose it. So let's say there is a strength in this left arm now, and there is strength because I use it. But let's say I tie it behind my back and don't use it. 
Well, after about six or eight weeks, there will be an emaciated, thin, white, hairy arm with very little strength in it. But as I begin to use it again, nature will supply all that strength back to it. So, as you begin to attain higher levels of consciousness, the brain will actually support all of that. And you won't be trying to get to 15%, it'll be 100%. There is no limit for man. None at all. Have you any explanations, just personal ones, as to why the greatest brains amongst humanity are only accessing, let it be, 15% of their brain capacity? What we call great brains. I gave the example of Leonardo da Vinci dying in the arms of the King of France, weeping that he had wasted his life. Isaac Newton, who would be considered to be one of the great brains of his time. Do you know how he died? When he was on his deathbed, he said, I do not know how I appear to others, but to myself I seem to have been like a little boy playing on the seashore, seeking a prettier pebble than ordinary, or a bigger shell than ordinary, whilst all around me the great ocean of truth lay undiscovered. So despite his marvellous, marvellous mind, he realised that he had dedicated it to pretty pebbles and shells, while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered. So... The great minds, and they are great minds, and one has to admire them for great minds, but they're not dedicating themselves to the eternal. They're dedicating themselves to understanding the creation. Again, take somebody like Jesus. Jesus' instruction was the complete opposite. He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all else will be added on to you. He said, first of all, discover the kingdom of God. Now, all of us are absolutely busy trying to eke out a living or understand this creation. So we're doing a completely opposite. That would not be considered to be greatness. You don't have to be confined to 15%. And you can use 100%. But you must have full access to consciousness. Otherwise, you will struggle between this 2% and, let's say, 15%. That's all that will be available to you. But at the highest level of consciousness, nothing is hidden from you. There's a marvellous book. It's about Meister Eckhart. I don't know if you've ever heard of Meister Eckhart, but anyway, Meister Eckhart, one of the great, great, great Christian mystics. And the man who wrote the book about Meister Eckhart said of him, Meister Eckhart, the man from whom God hid nothing. That's not 15%. I mean nothing. You needn't worry about 15%. But it won't come through ordinary education and it won't come through ordinary application of the mind or brain. The key is the level of consciousness. Consciousness opens up everything. All knowledge, whether of this creation or of the spiritual realm. So, okay, anybody else? When we start on a path of enlightenment yes. or developing some insight, in terms of those around us, prove difficult, you know, maybe the anti Nelly type character, <laughs> you know, how in a very practical way can we use it not to 
cause conflict within ourselves in terms of the fact that they would be resistant to it, not enlightened, we'll say. Yes. Um, maybe there's a certain need that we would like to pass it on to them in some way or other, but nevertheless knowing that if we did, it would be very much rejected. How, in practical terms, can we interact with people bearing that in mind and the understanding that they may not be interested? You know, in right. Okay, very good. The first thing to do is you must never claim any wisdom yourself. You never can say, well, I've done a lot of work. That's the first thing. The second thing is you must never want others to do it. You must never want it as a desire. I only wish my husband was as interested as I am, or my Aunt Nelly, or whatever. That desire only produces a resistance in them. It's like you're pushing them from behind. And when you push somebody from behind, all they do is brace themselves and resist. So that's the second thing. The third thing is you must always meet people where they are, not where you are. For example, sometimes I give a talk in John Scotus to children. And they might be aged 12 or 13. And they're going through their cynical phase and meditation is rubbish and all these sort of things, right? So... I don't come in and tell them it is their duty as members of mankind to lay down their lives for the sake of truth or philosophy. I ask them what they are going to do when they grow up. Let's say one of them says, I'm going to be a rock star. So I say, do you want to be a really excellent rock star? One of the all-time greats. Number one after number one after number one. And so they say, yeah. And I say, well, you should meditate. Because if you meditate, you will be a greater rock star than if you don't. Another one says they want to be a footballer. And I say, well, the thing about meditation is it gives you great capacity to concentrate. And you'll become the best team player. So if you're really interested in football, my advice to you is to meditate. Now, no matter what they say to me, they say they're going to be a beach bum. I say, excellent. But meditate, and you will be the all-time great beach bum. Right? So you meet the person where they are and you give an answer that suits them. Let's say you had children. Say you have a three-month-old. Well, there's a diet that's appropriate to the three-month-old and it doesn't include 16-ounce steaks because they just choke on it. Now, as they get older and more mature, then the diet can change and they will be able to take 16-ounce steaks. Well... Spiritually speaking, don't give 16-ounce steaks to people who need Heinz 51. <laughs> okay? Give them an answer that meets them. It's a very important thing. Is it because you would be delighted if they sort of joined you, or is it for their sake? So you must meet them where they're at, and let them ask questions. Do you remember that film when Harry met Sally? Remember the restaurant scene? The lady who says, whatever she's having, I'll have. Now, if there is somebody that you love, and you would wish for them to give themselves to philosophy, what you do is you display wisdom, happiness, peace, freedom. And they begin to say, whatever she's having, I'll have that. <laughs> because everybody wants happiness. Okay, anybody else? 
You mentioned in your talk about the holiday brochure. Would you like to enlarge on why it's predetermined which one you're going to pick? People don't really like that point because we like to think that we freely choose. Say you take snooker and somebody hits the white ball and then it goes off one cushion, off another, off a red, onto the black, let's say into the hole. It's all predetermined by how it's hit. Everything after that simply happens. Now it's like that with us. If there's a particular eye character here, let's say in Lansdowne Road, we have 45,000 people, and 40,000 are Irish, and 5,000 are English. And Ireland score a try. 40,000 will rise to their feet. They don't decide. I think I might stand up here now and applaud a little bit. They are lifted up. And the other 5,000 are pinned to their seats. <laughs> right? And cannot rise up. It's all being determined by the eye character. If Shane Mulhall has in his mind a particular type of holiday, or he defines holiday as such and such, then he will be led to a particular holiday. If I can give an example from my own life, and this is terribly prejudiced on my part, but anyway, it so happened that myself and my wife owned a house once, the majority of which actually fell down. So we now had to move back in with my mother and father, which was an absolute delight for my wife, as you might imagine. Anyway, after about six or nine months of this, and we finally got my finances back into a reasonable state, we started to look for a house again. And this eye character that existed then determined that he would only live in certain areas in Dublin. There were other areas which were not worthy of him. <laughs> right? One of the areas that we would not live in was Bray. I'm not living in Bray. And so every time we were scanning through things and house come up for Bray, I'd say, oh, useless. I'm not interested. And I would dismiss it as a valid place to live. Anyway, it so happened, one Sunday afternoon, I'm watching the big match. It was a soccer program on UTV. And they were showing Scunthorpe against Tranmere Rovers or something like this. The rain was pouring out of the heavens and it was nil all with about 70 minutes gone. And if the match was still alive today, it'd still be nil all. The world's worst soccer match. After 70 minutes of sheer torture and boredom watching this match, I finally got up out of the couch and I said to my wife, look, let's just go for a drive and see if we can find a house. So rather than going through newspapers, we would just go for a drive. So anyway, we drove along and we got to Shankill. And Shankill is about three miles from Bray. So I'm about to turn around and something said, no, just go on, just go on. So we went on and we drove into Bray and I was mumbling to myself as we were going through Bray, what an appalling place it was. But we got to the top and for some reason we went up a particular road and we turned into an estate and there was a house for sale there. And I looked to Anne and I said, that's perfect. And she said, yes it is. So we bought it three days later. <laughs> now, that was a moment where the eye character was set aside and you could call that a conscious free will decision.
but up to that point it had all been just an eye character meeting particular houses so that's the explanation of it it appears to be free will on our part but it's simply reactionary one has to step free of identification and then you don't react to the world but you respond to it and then you'll find that your response is even surprising to you you sort of act outside of yourself as you would ordinarily consider yourself and these are the really great moments where things are new spontaneous surprising and fresh just the way it works okay yes it's speaking about acting out of spontaneity can that which is acting out of spontaneity be described in a manner other than that which it is not in other words what is the I that is acting out of spontaneity actually in that moment there is no I character it's not another I it's not an other aspect of the ego for a moment there is no ego and what is happening is simply the body, mind and heart are operating as they are meant to if you were a religious man it is like as if God speaks through you rather than you're speaking you sometimes see this and I heard that Martin Luther King Jr.'s widow actually confirmed this but I remember when Martin Luther King Jr. gave that the marvelous speech of I have a dream what happens is he's reading the speech and it's very obvious he's coming to the end of the speech and something happens something happens and he starts to speak from a different place and it's completely liberated speech and it rises to a, an incredible level and if you really watch the speech you see this happening something happens where Martin Luther King Jr. falls away and something spectacular takes place which is beyond Martin Luther King Jr. it's that sort of sense there's a transcendence or a dissolution of the limited individual and something special takes place so it's not another I it's freedom from I what is said about consciousness is that the opposites are very similar if you take something like hatred is very similar to love in the sense that both completely possess the heart so albeit they're opposites they have similar characteristics now deep sleep and the highest level of consciousness albeit opposites have similar characteristics in deep sleep there's no sense of identity and in the highest level of consciousness there's no sense of identity to give you an example from the Bible Jesus said that he only spoke the words that the Father gave him so that none of the words were his own imagine that when you think of how you and I speak you know, 99.9% .9 of the words are our words but he never spoke one word of his own he simply allowed himself to be a medium through which words were spoken so that's what happens when the ego falls away you effectively become a channel rather than a source okay
Is there anything else you'd like to ask, or does that answer it? Yeah, okay. Here's this lady here. You were talking earlier about something unchanging exists in you to recognise change. change. And you just brushed kind of quickly over the idea of birth and death as change, and therefore the unchanging thing exists maybe throughout these periods and before and after them. And I just wonder, would you ever find it acceptable to think of birth and death as the coming into existence of both the changing part and the unchanging part of you, and then death being death of this, or would you consider, if you accepted the existence of the unchanging part that this is also proof for before and after life I would take it that it is proof that we are eternal because death is undoubtedly a change otherwise you wouldn't know that somebody was dead you have a dog and he lies down in front of the fire and six weeks later he hasn't moved right? (laughs) (laughs) and he's not looking for any food you think I think he's gone right So you recognize it as a change. And because you recognize it as a change, you now call it death as opposed to life. You give it a different name even. So death is a change from life. If you can find something that is unchanging, then it cannot suffer or enjoy change. Therefore, it cannot die. But that's only reasoning. And you could say, fine, I accept it, but it's not going to change your life. So, the idea is to experience the unchanging. Now, in the heart, if we truly love, we experience the unchanging. Our love is constant. Now, we rarely love, so our love tends to go up and down, depending on how the other person is behaving to us. But if we truly loved, we would experience a love that does not change. When you become very, very still, when the mind really enjoys depth, then you become aware of something which doesn't change. So that's why meditation is often recommended. In the fullness of meditation, the mind becomes absolutely still. The senses subside and the heart is at rest. And you become aware or reconnect with that which never changes and you know it never changes you just know the wise man or woman is always self-aware even when they're totally engaged in action there's a stillness about them there's probably some people you know and they're very agitated type people and there are other people that when they speak you're reminded of silence And when they move, you're reminded of stillness. These people are connected with this unchanging essence. When you connect with that, then life completely changes. Because all fear goes. If you knew you were eternal, if you really knew it in experience, you could never be afraid again. What could you be afraid of? What's a a 40-year mortgage in eternity. (laughs) It's just nothing. Let's say you go away on your holidays for a weekend and it rains out of the heavens for one day. You think, it ruined the whole weekend. Let's say you decide to go around the world for a year and it rained one day. You think, so what? One day out of 365. Now imagine... It was one day out of eternity. 
it wouldn't bother you at all. If we knew we were eternal, everything would take up its proper perspective. But because we make our world so small, we make everything very, very valuable. So like a child can make its world very, very small. Sometimes, let's say, you say to the child, we're going out for the day, and he hasn't got Teddy with him now. He says, I want to bring Teddy. You say, look, just leave Teddy behind. He goes absolutely berserk. Because for him, at that point in time, Teddy is everything. Now, we do the same. Sometimes we're looking for a car park space, and we have to drive another 200 yards, and we think life is full of injustice. Because for us at that point in time, getting the car park space has become our whole life. Or getting a cup of coffee, or getting a sleep, or all these sort of things. Whereas if you really connect with your eternal existence, well then, as I said, everything has its proper measure. And in its proper measure, you'll enjoy everything. You'll enjoy success, failure, rainy weather, sunny weather, youth, old age, all of them, they're all fantastic they're all just different aspects of manifestation but they don't affect your eternal existence it's very important to connect with this unchanging aspect and that's what philosophy does philosophy or true religion helps you to reconnect with your essential existence and as I said in connecting with that then you begin to enjoy all of life it's not bad. So that's it. Yes, anybody else? Um, you told a story a while back about the man who said, I don't like jam. We all have those identities and we yes. find it very hard to break out of them. We carry them around for our lives. How do we deal with those? For those of you who are not familiar, it's just a man simply who, due to a particular situation and then loss of memory, thought he didn't like jam and didn't eat it for 40 years and then suddenly realised that it was just an idea in his mind and then ate jam by the ton thereafter to try and make up for his jamless existence. Now, we all have similar ideas. What's required is the third aspect that was mentioned in the talk is self-examination. Say you were a businessman and you're running a business. Every year you need to take a look at the business and see that which is not conducive to either harmony or good value or profitability, etc., etc. And that which is not useful, you need to desist from. So as a human being, we need to do the same. You need to look at ideas which occupy your mind and feelings which fill your heart and ask, are they conducive to freedom, peace, happiness, joy, all of these things. And if they're not, one should let them go. Say you came to my house and I very casually presented a meal for you and as you looked at it, there were rotten bits in the potato and there were black specks on the carrots and there was all sorts of things. What you would do, perhaps politely, but what you would do, you would cut out that which was not appropriate for human consumption, take it off the plate and eat the balance. That's what you do. You wouldn't think, well, it's just good manners to <laughs> bring about an early demise. All right? You wouldn't do that. You would look to that which was not useful for human consumption. 
Well, there are all sorts of ideas which are not useful for human consumption. One idea is that I'm inferior to other people. That's a useless idea. And equally useless is I'm superior to everybody else. Or feelings like anger and envy and greed are not conducive to your happiness and peace. And if you find them in your heart, well, then you do something about them. You get rid of them. We tend not to do an audit. We tend to sort of think, this is the way I am. Now, again, to give you an example, when a person goes to bed at night, they normally undress. They take off all their clothes. And, effectively, they mentally undress and emotionally undress. Otherwise, they can't sleep. Now, when we wake up in the morning, we emotionally dress up again. We say, oh, God it's Monday, you know, and we sort of wish a minor illness on ourselves that would go on Friday, right? <laughs> you know, and we dress mentally, I have to do this and I have to do that and God, I'm not really looking forward to that and I have to make that phone call and it'll probably be very unpleasant and I really am looking forward to a cafe latte at 11 o'clock with vanilla syrup on top and all sorts of things. So all these things rush into the mind. Before we've even got dressed, we're fully dressed mentally and emotionally. Well, we should learn to put things down completely and only put back on that which is conducive to a full and glorious life. So once you do that, just as you can take clothes off the body, you can drop ideas in the mind and emotional traits in the heart no matter what age you are and no matter how deeply ingrained they apparently are you can take them off and one should do that it's a terrible thing to be burdened by anger terrible thing or envy or greed or low self-esteem or excessive self-esteem these are burdens you're not asked to carry we're so interested in having an identity We'll even have a bad one rather than no one. So people will say, you know I have the worst temper in the world. And they're really proud of how bad it is. <laughs> or they tell you with remarkable glee how much they hate their mother-in-law or somebody like this. And they say, this is not ordinary hatred. This is, this is the real thing. Just to have an identity. And I've told this story before. I once had a meeting in England somewhere and I was waiting in the reception area and there was a security man there rather than a receptionist. And I sat there waiting for time to go to the person I had to meet and I'm reading my newspaper. The security man starts to talk to me through the newspaper. You know, I've got the newspaper like this and he starts to talk to me. He says, you know, I have a very bad heart. So I very quickly put down the newspaper. And I said, I'm very sorry to hear that. And he said, yes. He said, I had a terrible, terrible heart attack. And I said, oh. And he says, and I have to take very special pills for it, which he then took out and showed them to me, you see. And uh, the doctor said it was one of the worst heart attacks they had ever seen. Now, he was so happy. <laughs> telling me about this appalling heart attack and how he now lived 
on the cliff edge of life and death. Right? You know? But you could see that actually if you took away his bad heart, he'd die on the spot. <laughs> This bad heart was the only thing which was keeping him alive. Right? <laughs> My mother would say to me, oh yeah, I was at the doctor, I was at the doctor, and I got another tablet, and she'd have a special type of arthritis that they couldn't cure, and all sorts of things, you know? Not your old average peasant type arthritis. <laughs> we actually are very fond of our identities, even if they're negative. But if you ever really tasted freedom and peace and bliss, you'd never want to go back to that again. We need more and more to really experience what it is to be yourself. And that is so delightful and so natural and so fulfilling that you'll never want to go back. We're like, you know those dogs that are on the extendable leashes? You know those ones? And the dog is so thick he thinks he's free because when he wants to run a bit faster the owner just presses the button he goes shooting off he thinks he's free well we're all on a leash and sometimes we run up against him and we choke and we're so disappointed we thought we could achieve A or B but life conspires to deprive us of that opportunity well we need to know we're always on a leash we're not free at all we're in a sort of an open prison and we really need to go free. And the world needs real examples of this. People who are simply free so that others will be encouraged. If you were to compare yourself now to when you were a child, do you have less faith? I don't mean faith in God necessarily. Faith in humanity or faith in people or faith in your parents or faith in teachers. Do you have less faith now are you less devoted now than you used to be? Do you have less energy? Are you less interested in everything now than you used to be? Are you less bright? Are you less enthusiastic? Have your pleasures become more expensive? Remember the time you used to love just dancing in puddles? Fantastic particularly with new shoes, right? <laughs> just to dance in puddles, or to climb a tree, or to look at a leaf. Or you know when you were a little girl and you wanted to brush your mother's hair. And that was sheer heaven, to be allowed just simply to brush your mother's hair. So have all these things gone? And what have they been replaced with? Mortgages, dating agencies <laughs> health levies yeah. what happened to all that joy and simplicity and openness it doesn't have to be like that there's no reason that there should be less love in your life now than when you were a child or less brightness or less energy the idea is to die young when your body's very old. So again, like the previous question, the, the thing is to really take a look at one's life and to look at that which is not useful. Once you see it and you see that it's useless, you dump it. 
but you must see it first otherwise you carry it so most of us are carrying this self-imposed idea about ourselves and we are ultimately the creator of it somebody says something nasty to you and out of the whole range of emotions you have picked the one of becoming insulted whereas you could simply pick the one of compassion for somebody who feels obligated to be insulting to others so you could pick compassion but we take insult and so that's the reason why we have to wake up again that's the reason why we need higher levels of consciousness if you're in a dream and you go to a supermarket and let's say the fruit is not pre-packed it's possible to put rotten tomatoes into your bag but if you're wide awake you'll only select the best fruit to go into your bag if you enjoy a higher level of consciousness you would only pick the best and that's fantastic and then you'd be your best so I just wonder that if this is what our natural state should be why is it so unnatural to us or why do we for example take the wrong meaning why are we all going around half asleep yes. our natural to be like that because we're all making the same mistake if everybody makes the same mistake they end up with the same outcome and the fundamental mistake that we make is that we think we are our body mind hearts so that's the mistake a little child doesn't think it's its body do you ever see a child playing with its toes it doesn't realize that the toes are connected it's just playing with something at the other end of the cot if you put a little boy child and a little girl child into a bath together the little boy child doesn't think I'm a boy and she's a girl it has no gender consciousness it also doesn't think I'm a little Irish boy it has no nationality it doesn't think it's average looking it thinks it's beautiful do you ever see a child look at itself in the mirror He's not thinking, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> Damn DNA. He's <laughs> not thinking like that at all. It's completely and totally satisfied with itself. But everybody tells it, you're a boy. You're an Irish boy. You're an Irish boy who's very good at mathematics, but you're not very good at this and we keep piling on this identity and the little boy or little girl accepts it but it's time to throw it off again Jesus never said that you were a little Irish girl never said that what Jesus said was that you were perfect as your father in heaven was perfect the Bible says you're made in the image of God so how small is that? how small is it to be a replica of God do you think God wakes up on a Monday morning and says oh God <laughs> you know, another week in this creation so why not really have a go to discover the truth about yourself I found many years ago that my mind would always be considering how my life could be better so I would think if I had more money that would be really nice 
or if I had a new car, or if the garden was bigger, or sometimes if it was smaller, or perhaps if my wife really liked gardening, and then I wouldn't care how big it was. (laughs) 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 Or all sorts of things. And the mind, when be drinking cups of coffee, would be thinking, if I had a longer holidays this year, that would be so nice. Always imagining a better life than the one you have right now. So I noticed this. I did this for about six months. I used to sit down I say, right, how do I know my life would be happier if I had more money? I would imagine more money and see if I could prove to myself that I would be happier. And I couldn't find any proof that I would be happier if I had more money. So I tried with less money. Let's see if I had less money, will I definitely be less happy? And I could find no proof for the fact that I might be less happy if I had less money. And then I tried to prove, well, if I had no wife, would I be more happy, less happy? And I could find no proof. Or more kids or no kids. Or more successful or less successful. Or a bigger car or a smaller garden or whatever it was. I suddenly realized that I couldn't be sure that anything would add to my happiness or take away from it. So I stopped dreaming of a different life and started to enjoy this one. When you start to enjoy this one, then you suddenly realize it doesn't have to change at all. This one is actually perfect as it is. It's just up to me whether I'm going to enjoy the party or not. Do you ever go to a party and refuse to enjoy it? (laughs) Because it's his in-laws party, right? So, (laughs) if I enjoy it, we'll only have to go again next year. (laughs) What I'll try and do is really not enjoy it, and then maybe we'll get out of it next year. But you refuse to enjoy it. When in a way we're refusing to enjoy our lives. So unnecessary. The way the sages say it is that each one of our lives is perfect. Absolutely perfect. So your life is perfect. It's perfect for you. Now, if this lady had your life, it wouldn't be perfect for her. And hers would not be perfect for you. But your life is perfect for you. It is specially designed so that you can discover the truth about yourself. You only have to live it. If you had a different life, you would not be able to discover the truth about yourself. So all those terrible things that may have happened to you and all the good things that have happened to you, they are absolutely necessary for your liberation. Without them, you're never going to discover the truth about yourself. So the whole idea is to meet your life with completely open arms. You embrace your life, the good and the bad. Meet it, learn from it, and move on. And never wish for a different life. So, yes. Just about life, do you think it's predetermined? Do you think no matter what choice we make, what decisions or ambitions we have, do you think there's always something that forces us some way no matter what we do well what the Shankaracharya has said is that if you live in a dream then it is completely predetermined it's completely mechanical but if you're conscious if you're wide awake then it's not predetermined there may be certain factors which are predetermined so it may be predetermined that you will get cancer or that you will die at a particular age even if you go to the gym and eat all healthy foods, the heart attack comes. 
So there may be certain factors in your life which are predetermined. But the one thing that is not predetermined is how you respond to the events. And you see, it's very interesting. We're all looking for events in our lives. So people, when they're younger, they look to marry. And they think to marry would be an advantage. But it's not necessarily an advantage. The only question is, how are you going to respond to being married? Or how are you going to respond to being single? And that you have absolute freedom over. Even if events are predetermined, the response to them is not. That is your absolute freedom. And that's the only thing that matters. We're all the time trying to control life. We don't want people we love to die young. We want our investments to go up rather than down. All sorts of things. We're trying to control everything. Now you're not in control. That's the most obvious thing in the world is we're not in control. So don't try to control the creation. But do control your responses to it. And once you respond to your best then you will find that you enjoy all of life, whether the investments go up or down. When your investments go down, it teaches you not to place your security in that which can go down. It's teaching you to place your security somewhere else. So be very grateful when your investments do go down, otherwise you could live a life in delusion. So when somebody dies on you, and you think it's terrible, your heart aches. It's teaching you to find a way to love that bears no ill fruit. That's what it's teaching you. It's telling you, this is not the way to love. There is another way to love where you can bury the dead without any loss. So life is always teaching, saying to you, this is how to become free. And it's all determined by the response. As regards the events of life, you simply give yourself to the moment and let the creation unfold. You give your absolute best and let the universe do the rest. However, as regards the response to whatever the outcome is, that is absolutely under your control. And what you need to do is master your responses so that your responses are always full of love and reason and then you will benefit from those responses and so will everybody else if I make this the last question from this lady we have to make decisions every day about things yes. which will come from our values those values must be in some way bound up with the identities we take on just think and say of the holiday brochure example yes. again, if you take off all of your hats and all of your identities how do you ever make decisions then because if you're the mother who says my family comes first, you, you know, you're going to make decisions that will go in favour of your family life. Or the rugby match you're going to go to because you're wearing that rugby hat. Decisions, what are they based on? Alright, well, the Shankracharya once said that the will of the Absolute, or the will of God, is bliss for all, freedom for all, knowledge for all, and prosperity for all. So that's how you should make your decisions. Make your decisions so that everybody is blissful. Everybody gains understanding. Everybody enjoys freedom. And everybody prospers. If you simply make yourself the all, then 
every decision would be based on what happiness I get from it. Others might suffer, but I get happiness. If you decide you're a family person, then your family will benefit from your decisions. But those who are not your family will not benefit. If you decide that you're an Irish person, then your decisions will benefit the people of Ireland. If you decide you're a human being, then all human beings will benefit from your decision. If you decide that you're a spirit, then all will benefit. So that's the secret. The secret is to keep enlarging the circle. Let more and more and more people benefit from your decisions. So whenever you're making a decision, try and make it as inclusive as possible. Really live a big life. And you can do that. Let's say you're very tired. You can go to bed because you're tired. Or you can go to bed because you're driving everybody insane. And if you get a good night's sleep, they will enjoy your company more the next day. So going to bed can be for their sake. For whose sake do you dress? See, when I put on this tie, once I put it on, for the rest of the day, I don't have to look at it. But everybody I meet does have to look at it. (laughs) Well, that's a very important thing. When you hold a little baby in your arms, they remind you of how valuable life is and how special the human being is. And you're filled with awe and wonder and joy and hope for the future and all these things just by holding a little baby. Well, when you walk down the street, what do people think? Are they filled with awe and wonder and hope for the future (laughs) and joy and these sort of things? Or do they wonder where did she get her hair cut? (laughs) Yeah. Do you know somebody who carries themselves very, very well? And you're reminded of the dignity of the human being. Or Mandela, by his life, reminds you of the capacity of man to forgive. To embrace the so-called enemy. Well, this is a fantastic way to live. Where you remind people of the very best of the human being. And it's possible to live like that. You don't have to be on the world stage. You don't have to be president of South Africa. It's how you relate to the person who is giving you that cafe latte or who gives you the newspaper and the news agency, or the bus conductor. How are you treating them? Are you meeting them as a bus conductor? Or something made in the image of God? I guarantee you, if you meet a bus conductor as something made in the image of God, he really will look after you. (laughs) And he'll drop you right at the bus stop, right? (laughs) Okay. We better leave it at that. Thank you very much. Thank you.